Father, we have just sung and asked for a hunger for your ways. Father, much like praying for your kingdom come and your will to be done, Father, in order for your ways to be manifest in our life, in order for us to even hunger for those ways, there must be a dying to self. There must be a setting aside of our own ways, of our hungering after our ways, our kingdom, our priority, our vanity. Father, that does not come naturally to us. And so this is why we have to pray for these things. This is why we have to pray even now as we sit under your clear and precious, eternal, powerful word. God, we need you to open our minds and our hearts to make us ready to receive this word so that we will not throw up prideful roadblocks that would discourage change, but rather, Father, that you would even now create within us a desire to hear from you. Not, not any preacher, not any man, not any mere, mere human message, but your word declared to us so that we might have life and that we might experience change. Father, we cannot change ourselves. Only you can give us new hearts. And so that is what we ask for this morning both in anticipation of the Word and during the Word and in application of the world as we seek to live it out, that, Father, You would change our hearts. Specifically, as we have sung and as we will see this morning, as we have already heard in the Scripture reading, that You will change us such that it will be undeniable that here at Providence Bible Fellowship, we are a people united in Christ. It will be evident by our love for one another. And therefore, Jesus will be magnified in it. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We pray that you would answer it to the glory of your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, and as you're finding your place there, I want to begin our time together by telling you about someone that I know, a little girl named Sophia. I've known her since birth and was blessed to be able to even hold her on occasions as uh, her mom attended our home fellowship group at our previous church and would she, as she ate dinner in our home or fellowship with other people, I had the privilege of being the babysitter. Um, we knew her for the first few years of her life, and then we moved away, but I understand that she is just as sweet as she was then, and even more so now as she says that she loves Jesus. However, some of Sophia's Sunday school teachers didn't know how to best love her in the midst of her autism. While Sophia is extremely blunt and will tell you exactly what she is thinking without any filter whatsoever, she may even tell you she doesn't like you, 
she definitely is shy. And she abhors being the center of attention and especially dislikes it when people stare at her. And so it was incredibly difficult for her showing up to Sunday school one, one week without warning when all of the tables that were long and chairs facing the front where the teacher was were swapped out for circular tables where now all of her peers would have their eyes on her for the entirety of their time together. It overwhelmed her at the thought of that constant gaze. And she had a meltdown. She could not stay in that class that week. And this is one example of the recurring problems that faced Sophia and her mom faithfully trying to attend Sunday school and worship each week. And at the end of the day, without the support of others, it was just easier not to go for them. So not only did Sophia miss out on encouragement during that first Sunday school hour, so did her mom and her adult class. Now this morning, I don't want to be too hard on those teachers. We can understand that they may not be aware of how to interact with someone on the spectrum, even what was best specifically for Sophia. I I get that. I understand that. But at the same time, they didn't seem to ask either. Maybe they felt awkward talking about it fearing they would say something wrong or insulting. Regardless of the details, either by way, or, but by way of lack of awareness or by an inability to be proactive, two people were moved further to the fringes of the church. And that isn't God's desire for anybody in His church. Earlier this year, the elders hosted a lunch and learn for our congregation. It was an opportunity as we continually and joyfully welcome more and more people, both with physical disability and with neurodiversity, to learn how we can best meet their needs as a congregation, how we can best joyfully welcome them and assimilate them and make them feel like they are a part of our church family. And there are, even as a result of that lunch and learn, some very practical things that we are working on to address some specific physical disadvantages that people have, some things that are coming up in our kids' department. There is also the need to do something more because the greatest need lies in our ability, every one of us who are members here at this church, our ability to embrace a culture of understanding and friendship that brings unity to the body. And this is way harder than adding an audio assist device or getting more greeters to hold doors. In many ways, it is more costly because it requires us to humble ourselves, to move beyond what is comfortable to what is needed. Even this morning, you may have heard me use the term neurodiversity and have th- didn't even know it was a word, let alone, let alone what it means. Simply put, to speak of neurodiversity is to describe people who perceive and process the world and the stimulus it provides differently than most. At the present moment, this is not necessarily seen as a disability, though some people may at work and at school and here at church need accommodations, especially from us. People who are neurodiverse need our understanding, our friendship, and our love. And others with physical disabilities are no different. Rather than leaning away from awkwardness in these situations, we need to learn to lean in with compassion. 
And so in the future, you will see blog posts, handouts, various resources that we hope will continue to create a culture and a climate in which this is happening. Given the huge nature of the issue, we are not going to be able to talk about all this from God's Word this morning. And so I've taken the unusual step of including some resources in the sermon notes that I hope you will take advantage of. But more than any secondary sources this morning, we want to begin in earnest by looking at God's Word and laying a foundation for this culture that we are seeking to build. So in honor of the reading of God's Word, I invite you to stand with me as we read Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. From these verses this morning, we want to begin thinking about what it means to walk worthy in disability and diversity. And I think the first thing that we must understand from these verses is that we are called to live worthy of our gospel calling. We must live worthy of our gospel calling. Chapter 4 opens with a central transition in this book of Ephesians. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That therefore is what signals the shift between chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 and what follows. Those first three chapters, as is often the case with Paul, sees him laying out the glorious work of God in the gospel. He says, in Christ... We have the manifold blessings of salvation. There is net, there's nothing that is withheld from us in Christ. In Him we are chosen by God. We are loved. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We're forgiven. We've been given an inheritance. We've been sealed as God's people by God's Spirit. And as chapter 2 opens, Paul makes clear we didn't deserve any of that. God chose to love us even when we were dead in sin following the ways of the world under the sway of the devil, living for the fulfillment of our every wicked passion whenever possible, existing under his just condemnation. God had zero obligation to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. He would have remained unstained in his character, in his purity, in his holiness if he simply carried out his wrath against us on the last day. But Paul says he didn't do that. Instead, he lavished the riches of his grace upon us, making us alive in Christ. God chose to show mercy to us and to give us salvation instead. It's glorious. But it's also staggering when we consider the means by which this salvation would come to us. All of this was accomplished through the sending of God's own son, Jesus, fully divine, fully human. Jesus came into this world and lived among us lovingly, perfectly honoring God, his father in all things. And then in order to satisfy God's wrath against our sin, he offered up his own life in our place on 
on the cross, dying under God's righteous hand of judgment. Now, God could not have brought salvation. He could not have given forgiveness without dealing with our sin. That would have made him not to be God anymore. He wouldn't have been holy or just anymore. So, So God can't just say, oh, that's okay, don't do it again. He must deal with sin if he is to be God and consistent with his character. Sin must be punished. Evil must be dealt with. That is why Christ came into the world. It was by the shedding of his blood that our debt is cleared, that our sins are forgiven, and we are made right with God. That that is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And even as I think about that this morning, if, if you are here and you are hearing that maybe the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, and, and you've never embraced Jesus as your Savior, please find me or someone else afterwards and tell me why not. Because even as I am preaching this message to you this morning, God is saying to you, look at my son who died for you. Look at my son who came to save you from death and hell. Look at my son and trust him to be the only Savior that you will ever have to make you right with me. Look to Jesus and believe. And for those of us who have looked to Jesus, maybe very recently, maybe maybe it seems like a lifetime ago, that we heard that same call from God to look to Jesus and believe. And we did. We answered that call. But by God's grace, our eyes were opened, our hearts were made new, and we put our faith in Jesus. And what does Paul say? We have to now live in light of that calling. That calling makes a difference. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just fire insurance for the day of God's return. There is a practical change that needs to be manifested in our lives. He says in verse 1, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now that doesn't mean that we walk or we live in a way that makes us worthy of the salvation we have received. We we can't do that. There is nothing we will be able to do. No, uh, No feat of religious duty so great that we could pay back God for his love and his grace and his mercy in Christ. Nor does he expect that. Rather... We are called to live a life that reflects the worth, the beauty, the glory of the gospel. There was an immense, unthinkable cost to our salvation, Christ's own life, and our lives should be worthy of that. It should show and boast in that glory, that worth, that costliness of our salvation. In fact, the rest of Ephesians is explaining what this looks like practically. Live worthy of your calling is the command that then informs and influences and is explained to the rest of the book. So he explains what living worthy of the gospel looks like as we exist in the world with other believers, with our spouses, with our children, as we evangelize and as we endure spiritual warfare. Paul himself even shows the worth of the gospel in his address to the the Ephesians and the fact that he's writing for prison. Why? For the gospel. He says, I, a prisoner for the Lord. He says, this message is worth it so much, I'm willing to suffer and be in chains for it. But before he gets into any of that, he says, this is what it looks like to live worthy of our gospel calling with believers in the church. And Paul says, to walk worthy of the gospel together in the church means that we must pursue unity by gospel virtues. This is the second command, imperative, exhortation I want to give you from this passage. Pursue unity by gospel virtues. 
Paul's, emph- uh, Paul's emphasis in these verses is on the unity of the church. This reaches back to the end of chapter 2 where Paul talks about the coming together of Jews and Gentiles to different kinds of people to become one new kind of people, a new humanity called Christian in Christ. Before, there were deep hostilities between these groups. They did not like each other, and that is an understatement. And yet Paul shows how they have been united by the gospel, how how they have been brought near those who were once far away. So in chapter 3, Paul goes on to explain that this was God's plan all along. Though it was a mystery, it was something that was not fully understood by anyone up until the coming of Christ. Now it has been revealed, and this is part of his preaching ministry. He is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles as well as the Jews and seeking to see God's reconciling power between them. But beyond the categories of Jew and Gentile, there remains great diversity among all of humanity. As the gospel goes forth and God calls his people out of darkness into the light of his salvation, that diversity continues into the church. Rather than ignore it or let it keep us apart, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there's a couple different ways that scholars break down these verses, but I think it's really helpful to notice the two withs, the two words, uh, the two uses of the word with in verse 2. I think it helps us to understand how these virtues fit together. Essentially, we have two groups of virtues that are necessary for us to embrace if we are going to be eagerly pursuing spiritual unity in the church. So first, we must walk in humility and gentleness. We must walk in humility and gentleness. Humility is the inward, fundamental attitude of the heart, but it doesn't necessarily come to us. It doesn't come naturally to any of us, at least not me. Maybe, maybe just my mea culpa here, but I am at my core a very prideful man and must fight to the death on a daily basis to see that gone and humility cultivated. Humility, simply put, is a lack of focus on ourselves. And if the opposite is pride, man, how we are prideful. We live as if it is all about us. This is why we fight with our kids and our spouses so we don't get along with our neighbors. Lawns aren't trimmed the way that we want and so many other things. Yet God is gracious. And whether we like it or not, He humbles us when He first shows us our need of Christ and the reality sets in that we can't save ourselves doesn't matter how good we are, how, how, how much we give to the church. It doesn't matter before God. We must have Christ. That's humbling. That's humbling. And, and, and if we're willing to live the way he calls us to, by faith and dependence on him, he continues to work humility into our lives. And flowing from that humility then is gentleness. Humility is the inward view of the self which generates a certain kind of disposition towards others, that disposition is seen in gentleness. It's about the way that we treat the people around us. Some translations have meekness, but it is not weakness in the kingdom of God. Just the opposite. Because Paul calls us, he highlights these virtues for gospel unity because the person at the center of the gospel, Jesus himself, displayed those same virtues. 
In Philippians 2, we see this clear connection between Jesus' humility and his servant-heartedness in going to the cross. He considered the needs of others more significant than himself. Jesus was inherently others-oriented, even towards sinners. Jesus says he is gentle and lowly. Likewise, if our confidence is in ourselves this morning, we are not going to be an aid at bringing unity to this church. If our confidence is in ourselves, we will be prideful and arrogant and self-seeking. But if, like Jesus, our confidence is in God, then we will be humble. We'll be moving in that direction. We'll be able to look at others with love and desire to serve them meekly, gently. When this is the attitude of the heart, we will also be able to display patience and loving endurance. This is the second set of virtues, patience and loving endurance. Again, Paul says, I urge you to walk in, the, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. As before, we find this pairing of inward quality with outward attitude. Patience is that quality that allows us to be slow to take offense, to be slow to anger with those around us. Can you imagine being Jesus, God in the flesh, holy, perfect in every way, and surrounded by just the average human? That took patience. Far beyond anything I can imagine. People mess up, and what was our first response? Anger, why did you do that? Didn't you listen to me? How could you be so dumb? We're impatient. One thing's done our way in our timing. But Paul says that that's not a gospel virtue because it's not what we see in Christ. Instead, when people mess up, we don't dismiss them outright. We, we, we don't just cast them off. We are patient with them. Moreover, that allows us to bear with one another, meaning when people are weak or difficult or they fail, we don't abandon them. We don't lose patience. We hold fast to them in that relationship. We bear with one another in love. Just as the Father has loved us in Christ, therefore we love Him, so we also love one another in the midst of all of our disappointments and failures and sin. So if we were to sum up at this point, we could say this. Walking worthy of the gospel in Christ-like humility produces gentleness towards others, which leads to a patient heart allowing me to bear with others, even in offense, as I am eager to maintain unity. And that leads to our third exhortation. But before we get there, we need to ask ourselves, how do I cultivate these gospel virtues? How, how do I become humble and, and gentle? How am I patient and, and, and loving in my forbearance? How, how do I do that? You might say, read a book. No, not this time. Galatians 5 says, these very gospel virtues are a fruit of the Spirit. That means they are supernatural in nature. So we just, we just can't flip a switch somewhere and say, boom, I'm humble, boom, I'm patient. It doesn't work. So, so what can we do? How do we cultivate these things? How do we embrace them in our life? Three, three very simple things. First of all, we pray for it. If God says, I want you to have this, then we can have quite a bit of boldness in asking for that. There's a lot of things that we want and we, we think would be good for us, but we're not for sure because it's not in the Bible, and, and so we might be a little, a little timid. We don't have to be timid about gospel virtues. 
God, you want to produce this in me, so produce it in me. Bring it into my life. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And then second, second, we remember God uses means. And we remember that, that we have been called now to remember our calling in Christ. So, so think back to that gospel call. Think back to that message which has brought us into fellowship with God, the one who was wanting to produce these virtues in us. Specifically consider his love towards us in Christ. If we meditate on God's love for us, that will help soften our hard hearts and make us loving towards others as well. And then in the midst of this, the third thing is move toward change. Just like someone who's learning a foreign language, they're going to look for opportunities to, to flex those muscles, to learn new vocabulary, to be engaged in, in speaking this other language. If we are learning the language of relational humility and patience and gentleness, then we should look for those opportunities and take them. Not, not, not the easy paths that don't require those things with our bros or whoever, but the difficult relationships that require change. And let's see what God will do in our lives. So from these gospel virtues, then, we must, third, work eagerly for gospel fellowship. Work eagerly for gospel fellowship. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First of all, notice that unity is not something that we create. The Spirit of God has already created this unity among us. It is our calling to maintain it and to do so eagerly. Why eagerly? Well, we'll be eager in that if we remember, again, our calling, the calling to which we have been called. If we remember the gospel and why we should be working worthy of it. That the bond of our unity which holds us together is peace. I think that means the peace that we have with God, back to what he says in chapter 2, here and now in Christ and with one another, this supernatural peace that transcends human barriers. But why would we not want to be eager to maintain that? Why would, why would we not be anxious to say, God, the, the, the love that you have poured out and shown into my life, the grace and the mercy, why would I not want to maintain the unity of your people that you have been showing love and grace and mercy to by being loving and gracious and merciful to them? There's an eagerness there to get on board with what God the Spirit is doing and to be a part of maintaining it. But practically speaking, what does this eagerness look like? And here's where we might get a little uncomfortable in terms of our application. Four ways that we can apply these gospel virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, and loving endurance toward unity in the midst of disability and diversity. So four things. First of all, be aware of the people around you. Be aware of the people around you. Again, pride comes naturally to us. And if I am prideful, I am inherently self-focused. That means I'm inherently not looking at the people around me or worried about the people around me. And the gospel calls us to do something better, to be aware of the people that are around me. Specifically, when we come here, not just generically, we're thinking about cultivating a culture of unity at Providence. Think about the people that are around you and what their individual differing needs might be. Consider the person, for example, that has a physical issue 
that makes walking around difficult. That means they're not going to do a lot of walking around. That means he or she may feel locked into their little zone. It would be very easy for me just to do my own thing and to zip around here on my nice healthy legs and not give any consideration for the person that can't do that. What should I do? Well, maybe I should be aware of the people that are around me and move towards that person and seek to engage them in relationship, in conversation, to even serve them. Ben Bolzer makes some amazing coffee out here on, on Sunday mornings. But, but if someone's not able to get around easy, they're on crutches, they're in some kind of assist device, they're not able to scooch over there and, and stay in there and get that coffee. So what do I do? I say, hey, can I get some coffee for you? It, it could be so simple. But it starts with being aware of the people that are around me and what their needs are. Consider the person who finds conversation difficult. This is, this is more than just the introvert. This is someone who processes the world differently. They find it hard to pick up on social cues, and that makes them, therefore, socially awkward. And they don't like being socially awkward. So they stand on the edges of the community. They're not in the midst of the conversation and joking around and enjoying. They're just kind of on the outside listening and observing, hoping at some point for this connection. How can you show gentleness with that person? by maybe dialing back your enthusiasm for the conversation, slowing down, engaging with them one-on-one, asking good questions and patiently waiting for the answers as it takes them time to think about all the things that are going on in their mind and potentially having dissected every single word of your question and having multiple thoughts about what each of those words mean in this context. How can you display gospel virtues like humility and patience toward people like this? How can you serve them either in specific tasks or through everyday friendship? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The quiet that starts, though, with being aware of the people that are around you. Secondly, we're going to take this up a notch now. Secondly, you're not just aware of the people around you. You want to move toward people you don't know. You want to move toward people you don't know. One of the easiest things to do on a Sunday morning is to stay in your relational lane. You already know some people really well, and you're content with that situation. So you talk to the same people over and over and over again, same people you may have lunch with, same people you're going to talk to during the week, same people you're going to get coffee with. It's the same people again and again and again and again. And listen, I'm under no misguided thought that we're all going to be best friends in here. Right? Just not, I don't have that much time, sorry. I mean, uh, I still got four kids at home. Uh, I barely have time for them. We're all not going to be best friends, right? But, but, if I want to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in this place, in this congregation, particularly in the midst of disability and diversity, then the one thing I have to be aware of is a tendency toward cliques and easy relationships, Friends with people who are the same age, have the same interests, grew up in the same area, cheer for the same sports team, watch the same movies, listen to the same music, that is interpersonal child's play. It's good. It's great. But there's nothing supernatural about that. Anyone in the world has friendships like that. But the power of gospel is seen when none of those things exist. And suddenly... The most unlikely of people align in the deepest of friendships. Now we're talking. 
Now we're seeing something powerful, supernatural. Now we're seeing gospel unity on display because it defies the world's expectations. And it shows the true unity of the church. For me, one of the most powerful examples I've ever seen about this was when I worked along a people group for a few years on a couple of short-term trips in West Africa. Sometimes they're called the Touareg. They prefer Tamajek. And um, the, one of the very first days, I'm sitting with, uh, on the floor, nobody sits in chairs, you're on mats, uh, and uh, you're all eating out of the same big bowl, and I'm sitting there with some American missionaries, some people from my church, and with uh, these three Tamajek guys who had just, uh, not just, two, two had just converted, and one had been a, a convert for several years, and it was a leader in trying to evangelize his people. And he was explaining to me, he said, he said, John, there are two kinds of Tamajek. He says we call them the red Tamajek and the black Tamajek. Red because it's literally, there's a red tone to their skin. They're, they're originally from North Africa, the Berber people, and they, they're shepherds. They've migrated down into West Africa. And at some point, centuries ago, they conquered another people, another African people with much darker skin. They don't even know what tribe or where they were from, but they've assimilated them into their culture now. They're part of the Tamajek people, but they were seen as a lesser class in previous generations. Now, none of that really exists, and there's lots of reasons for that, and if you want to know, we'll go get coffee sometime, but I don't have time for it this morning. But what my friend Mohammed told me, he said, when I was here a few years ago, and I was eating with some brothers that are Christians that were black Tamajek, he was red Tamajek, he said, every part of the wiring of my brain was saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Because the social distinction between these two groups among the same people was so severe, it was unthinkable for him to put his hand in the same bowl and eat from the same portion of rice as these other guys, simply because of the color of their skin. Yes, racism exists outside the U.S. But he said to me, John, I, I knew though, we're equal in Christ. There's no red, there's no black, there's no man, we're, we're all together, so I'm going to make myself do this. And he did it. And then after a few minutes, he excused himself and he walked far enough away where no one could hear him and he promptly threw up all over the dirt road because the wiring was still there. The prejudice was still there. The relational line was still there. And, and I'm, I'm, think, I'm just like blown away by this because now we're all sitting here, we're all eating, and I'm thinking, are you going to go outside and throw up when we're done or what? And no, the gospel resolved that tension. These were his brothers now in the Lord. And, and it was amazing. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. And that's the kind of unity that makes the world scratch their head and say, maybe there's something to Christianity. Maybe there is something to Christ. And so my challenge is spread out from what's easy and lean into relationships that maybe God has to show up and do something special. Now, maybe you're here. And either part of your neurodiversity or just by virtue of your personality, you say, I am so shy, I can't do that. I, I, I do not have the emotional bandwidth to, to, to venture out and just talk to someone I have no connection to. I, do, I can't do that. Okay, fine. We are here to serve you, okay? Here's my suggestion for you. Just sit somewhere different every week when you show up. And those of us that have outgoing personality to spare will be happy to do the heavy lifting. We will reach out to you. And you just respond to us, and we'll see what God does. Third, we need to receive people as individuals. 
receive people as individuals. Humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance should lead you to take time to actually get to know people and not just make assumptions about them, to pigeonhole them, to assume you know everything that's going on in their life and then move on. This is good advice for everyone, but especially when we're talking about disability and diversity. There's an oft-used phrase. If you've met someone on the autism spectrum, congratulations, you've met one person on the autism spectrum. Meaning, you're not an expert, and you can't take what you know from this one relationship and transport that to every other person that identifies as being on the spectrum. It doesn't work that way. You wouldn't want to say, well, if I've met one pastor, I've met them all, right? I wouldn't want to hear that. One Ohio State fan, you've met them all. You wouldn't want to hear that, right? We want to take people as in, we want to be taken as individuals, and we should want to do that with others as well. We understand that everyone's going to be different and have different needs and different struggles. This is why I think biblical counselor Ed Welsh is so wise when he gives this advice. When you can't say we, move slowly. When you can't say we, Move slowly. Here's what he means by that. When your situation and experience is different from another person, then we move slowly towards judgments and assumptions and thinking that we have everything figured out. We are slow to walk away even when there's not an immediate connection. In fact, we should lean in even more towards that person to try and get to know them more, to take time with them. Some may be experiencing profound pain and difficulty in their lives because of their differences or their disabilities. Don't, don't simply shrug that off or offer a trite prayer. Lean into their lives and help them bear that burden. That's part of what gospel unity looks like. Finally, show love for all people. Show love for all people. Specifically show love in situations that are hard or uncomfortable. For example, when someone is stimming, that means making repeated movements or noises to provide a stimulus that helps them manage the emotions that they feel like anxiety and fear or excitement or anger. It can be off-putting and awkward if you don't know what's happening. You have to ask yourself, are you going to just avoid them because you didn't like that encounter, you didn't understand what was going on, it made you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you'll even make a joke about it behind their back later with other people. Or will you love them enough to see that as normative for their life experience and accept it as part of your growing friendship? So you're in a home fellowship group and someone has a genuine diagnosis of bipolar disorder and they take powerful medications to try to keep them normalized and balanced, but maybe they forgot to take their meds, or maybe their medication is not working the way they're supposed to, and they are in a manic episode, and they are just all over the place with excitement, with, with, with intensity, and you, you feel like you can't keep up, and you're thinking like, what is what's going on? Maybe, maybe you don't even know, you've never seen it, you've never experienced that, and it makes you feel uncomfortable. You're just going to walk away and say, Man, I don't have time for that today. I don't know what's up with them. Why can't they control themselves? Or say something else directly that's probably unhelpful to them. Or maybe, maybe you love them by leaning in in that moment, by backing off your own personality and intensity and, and, being, and being that kind of helpful, calming voice that they need at that moment. 
to help them through that episode. Sometimes even making a small change will help someone grasp hold of our love for them, adapting our preferences for the sake of unity. Several years ago, um, working with those same missionaries I talked about before, a man by the name of Warren was hosting a short-term team in his house, and there was a lady who was deaf that was among that team. And uh, when he was giving instructions about culture and about language and about customs, things you should and shouldn't do with this people group, she kept asking to, for him to repeat himself and to repeat himself and to repeat himself. And he didn't, he didn't really know why, and she came up later and she said, I'm sorry that I'm such a bad communicator, but I'm deaf and I read lips a lot. And Warren had this big, awesome beard with, with a mustache that completely covered his upper lip, and she could not tell for, for the life of her what in the world he was, what he was talking about. Well, he had no idea. But the next morning, you know what happened? He comes out, and he practically looks like an Amish guy because his, his mustache is virtually gone. And she was like, why did you do that? And he said, because I want, I want to be able to talk with you and have you understand what I'm saying. And think about how easy that was for him, and yet, how many people would not have thought to do that? I'm proud of my mustache. I've been growing this thing for years. Why would I get rid of it? Isn't that how we think? Such displays of love should be normal for us if we are truly seeking to walk worthy of our gospel calling because it was with profound love that Jesus saved us and called us to himself. And let me be clear, this attitude of love and service cuts both ways, though I, I think, based on Scripture, the, the, the weight of seeking and maintaining unity is always going to be on the majority. We think about the, the, the Jews in Jesus' day, that the, the teaching, the emphasis was on them to be willing to accept the minority of the Gentiles. That doesn't mean that the minority just stands back. They ought to lean in and pursue all of these same things. For those who have a disability or neurodiversity, the call to love is no different, but the emphasis will be flipped. Inevitably, we neurotypical people will make mistakes in our understanding and our attempts at friendship. We will say stupid things, and we will miss the obvious. We may inadvertently even insult you. Your love might be displayed in being patient with us in being gentle in your correction and continuing to forbear with those of us who are still learning. Now, when we pause to think about all of this, it, it is clear, man, this is, this is huge. Beyond the, the disability and the diversity thing, just being humble and patient and gentle and forbearing for the sake of the unity that the Spirit has already established and we are trying to maintain, that is massive. And we may be tempted to say, I can't, I can't do that, and just walk away from the message. But Paul, Paul, I think, knows our weakness, and so he gives us one final motivation, one, one final kind of push, nudge, encouragement towards unity. And in verses 4 through 6, he helps us, he tells us, rather, to remember the foundation of gospel unity, the foundation of gospel unity. Paul ends this section, verses 1 through 6, with an appeal based on the foundational realities of the gospel that we all experience. These seven truths, all flowing from their singular nature, should be like the morning trumpet blast of Reveille, waking us up to our call for unity in the church, causing us to, to, uh, to, to throw on the clothes of righteousness and eagerly pursue our mission of unity in the world, living out a life worthy of the gospel. 
Paul says we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now let's just think about this quickly. There is one body, that is, there is one body of Christ. There's only one true church. Doesn't matter what the, what the name says, doesn't matter what the denomination is, if we are truly God's people born again from His Spirit through faith in the gospel, there is only one church because there's only one Christ. There's only one body of Christ. And that church has been brought together, bound as one people by His one Spirit. There's not different spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who raised us from death to life when we heard the gospel and believed. And He gives us a singular hope, a shared hope. There is one hope to our calling, namely, that regardless of anything else that we experience in this life, no matter how easy or how difficult, our future is secure in Jesus. And so that leads us to take our eyes off and be confident in the things of this world and to be amazingly confident in God and what He has done for us. One body, empowered by one spirit, is united in the worship and service to the one Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave His life for us. Go Anywhere in this room, anywhere in this country, anywhere around the world, and you will find people who believe in that one Lord who worship and serve that same King, whom we will spend eternity with forever. In Him, we have exercised one faith and experienced one baptism. Again, just think about, pause and wonder the reality. Billions of people confessing their trust in Jesus, identifying with Him by the same sign, even though there are some people that get it wrong. They're not like us Baptists who have everything figured out. But, but the same basic sign of immersion in water for baptism on every continent since that first Easter morning, uniting us across time and ethnicity and language. We've all had the same experience because we have a common faith in Christ. It's glorious. It's staggering. And I want to see that unity maintained. Paul doesn't even leave us there, though. He reminds us we are one family, brothers and sisters, with one Father, God Himself, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no part of creation, let alone His people, the church, that is not under God's sovereign care. This is what motivates us to unity. It's that God Himself is working in all these things towards this purpose of one new humanity on the last day united in His Son, Jesus. In John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a blind man and His disciples wonder, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Man, that's a loaded question. If we were to pull back and take in the entirety of the Bible's storyline, we could easily say it was, it was neither, it was Adam. His first sin brought sin into the world. It brought a curse upon creation now everything does not work in the good way it was meant to work. But Jesus didn't go in that direction in John 9. Instead, in that moment, he tells his disciples, it was not, this, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. When our bodies and minds don't work the way that God designed them to, there, there is a real sense in which we are suffering from the sin of Adam. But even apart from disability and diversity. We all live under sin's curse. We all age. We all wear out. We all get sick. We all are under the curse, and death will eventually catch up to us all unless we live to see Jesus return. And all these things, we need not worry or be anxious or give in to bitterness. 
so tempting. But even in the most difficult circumstances of life, Jesus says God is giving us an opportunity to be the means by which he displays his might, his glory to the world. Even his gracious and glorious power at work and save sinners like us, making us humble and gentle, making us to be loving people who eagerly strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit to show for all the world the worth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so privileged, so blessed to be called your people, to have experienced the fullness of your love and your salvation, not just individually, but God, as you are building a people for yourself, you have called us into relationships, sometimes that are difficult, sometimes that are awkward, but nonetheless unified by the work of God's Spirit in our salvation, your Spirit, Father. And so God, help us to be eager to maintain that unity. Help us to be able to desire even, to push out from what is easy and normative in the world to what is supernatural and special because of the gospel of Christ. Father, a message like this might be scary for us because we, we just don't know how to respond in certain situations. We feel like we don't know enough about people, but Father, we pray that we would have confidence in you, that even as we work through awkward situations and uncomfortable things, as we have conversations where we feel foolish, but we have to ask why people do what they do, how we can help them in the midst of their struggles. God, help us to know that you are being glorified in our pursuit of the unity that you've established through your Son. We pray these things in his name. As we continue in a moment of silent reflection, just continue to pray and ask God to encourage your heart and to show you ways that you can apply this message to yourself.